I want to warn that I want this to be, as Kenny and Andy know, and now Jess knows, I get very anxious anytime conversations have to center around me. So I get very, very nervous and I don't like conversations centered around me. So I want to have this conversation as if I'm having a WhatsApp call or just a regular call with both the three of you, like a regular conversation so I can be relaxed. Because I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't do well with me being the center of attention. I get very anxious. Well, you'll be glad to know we've already started recording. So even that's recorded. <laughs> Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. We are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, share your favorite episode, and jot down our information wherever you found this episode. My name's Andy Lipson, and uh, we are joined by Kenny Zapeda, Jessica Holmes, and today we are rejoined by Eduardo Abarca. So, Eduardo, welcome. Hi. It's glad to see all of you together, finally. Yes. I'm sorry I have been gone for this long again, <laughs> so I'm sorry for long yeah. leaves of absences. <laughs> As long as you bring good stories back, we'll forgive you. <laughs> Eduardo, I think it's just good to have you back. I'm glad you agreed to um, do this episode. It's kind of an update for everyone, for us and for everyone else who's followed what's left um, about where you've been, which, where have you been? Uh, well, I said I'm in Colombia, right? Um, but specifically in Colombia, I have, so I, I came directly to Bogota, Colombia um, to meet up with friends uh, where I'm currently at, at this moment. And then, so that's the first, the first week I just spent time with friends and just hugs and kisses and lots of good times together because it was a while ha that I hadn't seen some of these uh, folks here. Second week, I decided to visit. Second, so the the, the following uh, two to two and a half weeks, I decided to travel up from the capital of Bogota, um, of Colombia, Bogota, going um, to the east and then up north. So, uh, so I went to Medellin and stopped by a few pueblos, a few towns there, and then up to uh, Cartagena and then Barranquilla. So those are the main places where I stayed, but along the way I stayed, uh, well, I visited uh, small towns and just got to know people, locals. It was nice. It was, um, uh, this is like, the, the, this is the first time I've been in Colombia. Not the first time in obviously Latin America. I've been to several countries in Latin America. As a matter of fact, Kenny knows, I mean, I visited Kenya and Nicaragua and, uh, and I like to always, when I come to Latin America, I love to stay with people, friends. Uh, I don't have family outside of Mexico, well, in the U.S. and and in and 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 not like outside of Latin America, not outside of Mexico in Latin America. But I I love being with my community members and people I meet. And you know, in the USA, you have all walks of life or all kinds of people from Latin America, and they're always telling you, "Oh, well, you can come visit me." And, 
and and in in Chile, or you can come visit me in Nicaragua, or you know, I also have backpacked. So I I visit people from different places where I, I know I, I um, annotate or take notes where they are from. They give me their addresses and the directions, and then I finally say, "I'm going to your country now. I'll, I'll be staying with you." Is that how you know these these folks? Like you know them from other travels, like because you weren't yeah. in Colombia. So you were traveling around, you met them, and then you said, hey, I'm coming to Colombia. Is that what yes. you mean? So my, my initial contact here, my initial contact here was another backpacker in Paris, France. Uh, his name is Freddie. And he, uh, he's the one who's connected me to other folks here. Uh, I met him uh, in Paris. We, were, we met up in a hostel and we had a good time and we shared contact information and then he told me to visit him. And then I have since met other folks here. And then I'm also a talker. So I, I <laughs> so just like when I was in England, I just hitchhike. Well, I, I don't hitchhike here. I, I'm a little bit nervous because of some experience I had here. I'll share that if you want. Um, but I, I, like in England, I just met people at music festivals where I worked. And, you know, I just stayed with people and I didn't pay any rent in england for half a year and i just stayed with folks so I, i'm not paying anything here i don't stay at airbnbs or or hostels here i don't like the hostels here horrible full of lousy sorry but lousy u.s americans that like to put up music and then they just party all night and then you don't sleep and then no 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 i tried it but it doesn't work it doesn't work for me um, and so anyhow, so when I went up to Cartagena, which is the north and Barranquilla for pop culture folks like Shakira is from Barranquilla. So I stayed there and it was nice. That was the Caribbean side. Um, and there's a huge difference from like regional talk, accents, um, culture, food, este, even just ethnicities, like different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, Los Costeños, the coast folks, are um, uh, more uh, on the side of like more African descendant and uh, down south, more working class people who work on like ranch land. Um, there's a lot of jungle. The topography is amazing. The bus rides are just <laughs> very sickening. <laughs> I don't, don't recommend eating <laughs> a lot of. It reminded me of Guatemala. It's like a lot of mountains. <laughs> and I, I got sick. I could not sleep. And I tried to save money by um, sleeping on the bus, taking the bus late at night. And you cannot sleep. Like you're constantly moving about. It's just not, no. And you think the buses are going to tip over. It's not a good experience. So I wouldn't recommend traveling at night. Um, and then I and then I took off on the fourth week, fourth Fourthish week, I decided I needed a break for myself, and I stayed some solitary time for myself. And then I started going about again, visiting different um, places and folks, and I've gotten to know some of the stuff we'll talk about in this episode. So, so I'm now back in Bogota, and I hope to share a map where people can find my uh, where I have been, mostly been, and I'll be going to Cali in. A week from now so that's where i have been where i'm at now bogota the capital i love it here and 
it's always cold. It's always raining. It's rare that it's sunny today. Um, and it's interesting the way that the capital is formed. Like there's like a slash, there's mountain regions on this side. And it's like a moon shaped area where there's like the, the center and the people live of the capital. And you can drink water from the fount from La Llave, from the tap, the tap, tap. <laughs> from the tap. Which is something unusual, right? Like uh, in a lot of Latin America, yeah. it's, it's not recommended um, because uh, it's untreated, I guess, and it goes through pipes and yeah. Yeah, it's in Mexico. Unfortunately, that's one thing I love about here is that in Mexico, you can't drink water from the tap. I mean, they say you can technically, but I wouldn't recommend it myself, especially not in the city. It's very, um, a lot of chemicals to try to treat it. And here, uh, you know, it also has chemicals to treat it, but it's a lot safer. And I've, I drink tea just fine. I mean, I boil it, you know, so. Kenny, you had a question? Yeah, I mean, I have a bunch of questions, but uh, I'm also curious, uh, you know, because I think we're going to hear a lot from Eduardo. Um, I'm curious as to what you two know or have heard about Colombia, uh, mm. you know, to, I don't know, I'm just curious about that. Because a lot of, I, I just feel like a lot of people that I run to in, 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 I talk to about Latin America and the U.S. don't have a good sense. And, you know, mm. it's not a judgment. It's just, I think it's also part of the educational system. And like, for me, at least, an imperial mindset that the rest of the world is just extra to like our our worldview, and so I'm I'm just kind of curious as to why you've heard or you know in, in what situations have you heard about Colombia? Um, um, Jessica, you want to start with that or should I? Yeah, I mean I I have a pretty short answer. Like next to nothing. Um, I feel I mean I'm glad, I think we should definitely put up the map because I I don't think a lot of Americans like probably have a really clear sense of even just the geography of, I mean, honestly, like anything just south of Mexico. Um, most of what I know about, you know, any countries in South America is not on account of schooling or any sort of formal education. It's just from meeting people. So like, I feel like it's one of the countries that I know the, the least amount because I have, you know, at least a few friends, um, like I have a friend from Chile and um, I know a few people from Brazil and Argentina and a couple other countries. Um, but I've never, I don't know anyone from Colombia. I've never gotten to visit. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess I know like this much about um, the politics just because I know, and I'm sure you're going to talk about the recent election. So I learned a little bit just um, from following that recently, but yeah, I mean, next to nothing is a short answer. Yeah, and I I did, because Eduardo asked me to put, get some maps ready for today, although we'll probably just place them in there. We won't need them right now. But if you had asked me before where Colombia was in South America, I would have I would have put it more in the center, like in my mind. But looking at the map, it's like literally connected to Panama, you know, so it's like it's the first entryway from when you go from Central America into South America, there's Colombia. It's like the gateway to South America from Central America. Um, and the things I mostly, all I know about Colombia, it's interesting because there's not many students at mission who are at mission from Colombia. So we don't get a lot of, or at least I'm not aware of many immigrants coming from Colombia because that's kind of how I ended up learning about South America is 
and Central America is from people who come to the school or who I met in mission in San Francisco or, you know, um, and there's not many people I hear who come from Colombia. Um, everything I know about Colombia is about, it's political, right? Like I know there, there's been a long standing civil war between the North and the South. South is where the farmers were and part of the FARC movement, uh, which was a guerrilla war to, to essentially, I think, liberate their land in relationship to the attempt to control it by the North. But the U.S. Um, US was uh, essentially helping that civil war by supporting the government um, and it's part of the U.S. drug war. It's a central piece, really, of the U.S. war on drugs um, and using the war on drugs as a way of militarizing the entire South America. And that Colombia is like the centerpiece of that. In fact, as the U.S. was losing its grip on South America, Colombia is where the U.S. became more tight and, and tightened and, and retried to refashion its grip um, and because that is really, to me, its stronghold in South America, its military stronghold. Um, and I think a lot, I know it has a lot of associations between people, between people in the, in the School of Americas and people who were in, in the Colombian military. Um, so those are most of the, of the things I know. And then that largely, by, by, by and large, that FARC movement has moved from a guerrilla movement that was successful in challenging the government that has largely been tamed, it seems, um, and has trying to draw itself into the political process, which I think is probably an indication that things aren't going well for the farmers in the South in, ter in terms of their future of independence. That's my suspicion um, if I look at these political developments from afar. And I guess I just wanted to add that, yeah, you know, like you mentioned that important war on drugs, uh, you know, that's been kind of a cover, at least from my perspective, to have a military presence in, 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 in that region. Um, and like, if you look at the ge geography of Latin America in general, Colombia is very strategic. It's actually not far from Miami, you know, it, it, you know if you fly directly. Um, and also, um, you know, the Caribbean and uh, a lot of US military bases, uh, you know, fighting the war on drugs are close to uh, petroleum fields and happens to also be close to Venezuela, right? Um, and so, you know, that region, again, like you said, is very important. And, and for that same reason, at least the, what I know of Colombia, you know, because Colombia has always been present in my life, you know, because they produce a lot of cultures, a, a lot of music. Eduardo has traveled to a lot. They produce a lot of like cumbia, salsa, uh, a lot, you know, it's actually one of the reasons I want to visit Colombia, because I want to go to the coastal areas where like salsa is like, you know, it's, it's, it's the mecca of salsa in so many ways. Uh, and you know, and also in Cali, in Cali, and um, and so yeah, again, Colombia has also a history of economic ties, obviously with the U.S. And I think there are, um, for that same reason, I think culturally has developed with closer ties to American, the American life in some ways, um, while keeping it, you know, itself. And, and it's funny because I often think of Guatemala, just like Eduardo mentioned, Guatemala, the same geographical, similar geographical, uh, you know, um, diversity, a lot smaller. But in Guatemala, too, it's also another country that has a lot of U.S. military presence because, again, the same excuse of war on drugs. That's what they've used for many years. And, and the first war on drugs and the first violence that was seen in relation to the cartels, uh, quote unquote, uh, was actually Colombia, not Mexico. Uh, and, and then, um, but now we're seeing what happened in Colombia, you know, like 40 years ago, 
uh, in terms of the increase of, of violence because the state supposedly went to war with the cartels. And so that's at least what I know of Colombia. And, um, and also the one, one other thing that I think will come up will be relevant is that because of the close ties to the US, um, Colombia has not really had official politics that are left-leaning while Brazil, Argentina, Bolivia, um, Ecuador, uh, you know, all of these countries in South America and even Central America, like Nicaragua, like El Salvador, um, in Honduras, they've had, you know, more left-leaning governments, or at least governments that have the rhetoric of being left-leaning. Colombia has always been central or right-wing. Right-wing, yeah. Yeah. And can I just make one point, just because this is, like, just like you said, the war on, war on drugs is not a war on drugs. It's a war of empire to control South America. Mm -hmm. War on terror was not a war on terror. It's a war of empire to control Af or Af Afghanistan and Middle East. And the war of independence in Ukraine is not a war of independence. It is a war of empire for the U.S. to make a fight Russia. You know, so folks, it's not none of these wars that they say they're what they're about. They're only it's very simple. They're always wars of empire. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I thought about coming down here to South America, I thought, why for me, Colombia? Obviously, I, I had my connection here, but it's also because when I've traveled, when I've backpack through Europe, I often was was seen alongside with Colombia, Mexican, Mexico and, and, and Colombia has always been seen as the narco trafficking countries of all of Latin America. And that's mostly what we are known for. Like when I've been, I remember working once in, in what was it, in Wales, I was in Wales in a music festival and we were around the fire and it was after the festival. And we were talking about what like the biggest drug trafficking countries and they were saying Colombia and Mexico they were just saying it's always and so I feel very this this sympathy and this this connection with Colombians in this sense and they feel it too with me because we've talked about it how most of the media has focused on that and they've always talked about that and I'll get into it more uh like the school of Americas and the world the war on drugs and you know during the 80s and oh, Pablo Escobar I'll talk about that but I just want also to, to mention that there's more to that in Mexico. There's more to that of Colombia than just being known as that. And I remember making a cheeky comment to one of my, um, one of my, um, my colleague or what we were, we're friends or we were just working together in the music festival. And someone said to me, uh, they said to me, oh, Ed, Eduardo, they said, Eduardo. And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, what is the, so what is the, the biggest uh, drug trafficking lord there is that you know since you're Mexican? And I said, well, I know one of the, the, one of the most known tra drug trafficking lords, you must know, of course, since you're British, uh, was Queen Victoria, obviously, right? I mean, she was a very big mafia leader. I mean, during the opium during the opium war, she led a whole war with China. So of course, she was the biggest drug lord, one of the biggest drug lords in history, right? I mean, you must know since I don't know why you're telling asking me why because I'm Mexican. You should ask yourself. You should know your own history. So it's like we're always seeing Mexicans and Colombians are always seen as like, no, look at yourself. Look at, you know, first world countries. They got their own history. Like, I don't have to be giving you your own history. And, you know, everyone laughed and 
you know, they thought that was kind of like everyone, ooh. But I just, that's what I want to share. I want to share more of what's happening here. I think there's a lot of great stuff that are happening here that we can learn from as working class folk. Um, but yeah, so that's another reason why I also came here, you know, because I, I feel that connection. I, and I also have to say, I'm going to add like side notes to all of this because I'm just amazed at how much, and I didn't know this, Kenny, how much Colombians love Mexico and how much they know a lot more than I do about Mexico. I'm, I don't know what in the hell, like they know the lyrics to a lot of banda and ranchera music. And they know about, they've seen all of the episodes of Chavo del Ocho, which is like a very, it's a Mexican, like, how do you describe it? Like a sitcom, but like a poor working class, you know, and they know so much. And when I'm at like parks or I'm in, I, I went to Parque Salitre, which is like um, a fair, but it's an established fair. And I'm in the queue and keep, you know, I'm talking to my friends in Spanish or whatever, and they can't help it. They just cannot help it. So they hear my accent. They hear my Mexican accent. And then they say, Orale, wey, the, all these like Mexican expressions. And I'm like, <laughs> first week, okay, fine. It was entertaining. Second week, it's like, ah, okay. Third week, okay. I, now I'm in July and I've been here since May. I'm a little fed up. Like it's every day, even last night, you know, it's like constant imitation of Mexican accent. And I am just like, okay, I've had it. I've enough. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I think that's part of because Me Mexico is actually very. It has like a hegemonic influence in Latin America. Like, I know, you know, and like in, in in terms of like the media that we consume, this is something my partner found out, you know, by dating because she comes from she's half Mexican, half Portuguese, and like she, but she grew up with Mexican, you know media and stuff because you know here univision and like um you know that was the dominant thing the point the point is that mexico like uh we know mexican culture a lot of latin america but mexico themselves don't know uh <laughs> countries, you know, they don't even know where the other countries are a lot of people uh but you know and, and it kind of reflects a little bit of the uh, what i was saying about the u.s a little bit of this you know like, oh, we don't care about the rest. Like, you know, we're just producing things for everyone else, you know, at least culturally or, you know, politically. And um, so, yeah, I'm not surprised, you know, <laughs> but it is funny that, you know, you're the minority there and like, they're bullying you. <laughs> it's constant. Um, as far as immigration, Andy, just to answer that point, um, I know we're digressing everywhere. I hope that this will be somehow. It's fine. Um, it is what it is. Uh, so most Mexicans immigrate towards like the West and South Americans towards the East. So I'm sure that's the reason why you haven't encountered lots of Colombians. I mean, I know lots of the Colombian community in San Francisco, California, uh, but I, 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 I remember when I, when I visit, well, when I visit Jake in Miami, it's, it's, it's Venezuelans, it's Colombians, it's Nicaraguenses, and, uh, and then up North, Puerto Ricanos and New York and Dominicans and, in Massachusetts, um, Brazilians, and uh, so it, it it just depends where. Like I I'm very, I'm minority in Florida, I'm just the minority, and in Mexico in California and Texas I'm the majority, right? But it's just it just depends how you get there. And then in Spain, when I was in Spain, there's lots of Venezuelans and Argentinians, and uh, you know the same sort of racist 
things that I get against me as a Mexican in California and towards Central Americans and Mexicans in the West Coast is what I see happening to uh, Venezuelans and Argentinians in Spain. I remember being asked by a Spaniard once, like a Spanish lady, she said to me, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Mexico. And she said, oh, okay. I thought you were Argentinian because I can't stand Argentinians. And I, so I'm like, whoa. So it just depends how much immigration there is in a, in, in a certain region, right? You're going to get that backlash. Um, it's unfortunate, you know, like in the UK, I wasn't seen as a threat. It was mostly Africans and Arabs and Indians, you know, and in Germany against Turks, you know, so it's always, and in France right now against Muslims, right? So it's, it's wherever you're at. And here it's against Venezuelans, unfortunately. I'm seen as a, I'm just seen as something great here. I, I don't think I am, but you know, everyone here and Venezuelans, I've been recording conversations with taxi drivers and they say the most horrendous things about Venezuelans. It's, it's very unfortunate. So just to kind of give a little context to Venezuela, you know, they border each other and, you know, the, the crisis that was created in Venezuela that in U.S. media is claimed that it, it's been created by the government there, right? But a lot, a lot of what is missing from that conversation is the, the economic warfare that has been, you know, carried out on Venezuela and their inability to import a lot of stuff and, you know, scarcity and so bringing down the... the their oil production was also a deliberate move by the U.S. and, you know, like external powers, you know, that have an interest in that. And so that's forced a lot of people from Venezuela to migrate all over South America. You know, in Colombia, it's actually received a lot of people. But as a result, there's been a lot of this xenophobia that you see by, you know, getting a masses of people, you know, into, into a land. Uh, you know, we've seen that happen in, in Mexico versus, versus Central Americans. We see this happening in Europe against Syrians, right? We see this happening in Italy against, uh, you know, Africans. And so it, it happens everywhere in the world, right? Like it's not just yeah. a Mexican in the U.S., white people own Mexicans. It, it's all over the world, you know. It's everywhere. A global crisis that, you know, is getting worse and worse, especially post-pandemic. Yes. Koreans in Japan, et cetera, right? Like, and I, I should say for my Latin American, South American folks, it's like, I'm sorry, I do not look like your telenovela, you know? <laughs> it's so funny too, I, you know, it's just like, I just, the, the way that the perception is, it's constantly different, the racism towards Mexicans. I'm supposed to look like Speedy Gonzalez in Mexico. <laughs> and here I'm supposed to look like, you know, what's the Eduardo, what, whatever his name is from one of the telenovelas. And I'm a disappointment to both, you know? <laughs> Um, anyhow, so I guess let's talk about some of the things that I, I came to really appreciate the politics and also the differences as far as uh, the uprisings that I was really interested in um, during the pandemia last year, uh, during 2021, which was really, I thought was extraordinary, which we had, we had discussed some of it. I mentioned it in some of the episodes in previous episodes where I had said that I wish we had seen some that level of uprising, such as in Australia, such as in France, such as in Colombia. And we didn't have that many uprisings in Mexico. And the reasons why, it's because we didn't close our economy. We just, Mexico is not the best. I'm not going to say it's like, oh, utopia. It isn't. But we were very liberal on COVID restrictions. We were very liberal on entry. 
and uh, we're very liberal as far as like masks. It depends where you go, of course, like you experience ND in touristy areas. Hold on, Eduardo, when you say liberal, meaning not, I don't liberal, mean, you, meaning that yeah. they were very free and more open than, thank you. The liberals, the liberal response was crackdown, that they were very not, not crackdown in terms of Mexico. Thank you. Thank you. I meant to say lenient, 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 um, not restrictive. Excuse me. Thank you. I didn't mean the politically uh, position of where your politics are for liberal. No, I mean, I meant to say so uh, in Mexico, we didn't close down because I'm no president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Había dicho que he had said that, no, you were going to uh, if we shut down the economy, people are going to die, not from COVID, but from hunger. Unfortunately, Colombia did not do the same. They did close down. And I think like, well, first of all, for Colombia, just to give some stats, you know, we have here 50 million, popul the, the population is here, 50 million people. Over half of that, over half of that in Colombia are in poverty. And like one in four of young people of under the age of 28 are unemployed. And you have people here who are, their lives depend on the underground economy. It's a currency, like, again, Latin America, as we have discussed before with Kenny, like, it is all, it is transactional through um, cash-based. It's not so much, people don't have a lot, like, in the USA, everyone's used to, oh, I just use my credit card or my account. Like, no, people use, their, their livelihoods depend on this cash economy. So to shut down the economy here, you worsened the, the situation here. Inflation is so high in Colombia and in Venezuela. That's why there are a lot of Venezuelans here in Colombia. But I'll speak to Colombia specifically because I'm here. The inflation is so high that uh, due to like minimum, uh, the, the, the minimum wage, has there's no rise in that. And also the, the, the peso colombiano is... Is so um, what do you call it? Um, it's so cheap. It, it the value. It's devalued. Excuse me. It's so devalued against the U.S. dollar. Here, four thousand pesos colombianos are one dollar. That is very good for me, right? Being Mexican and also I, I have double nationality and being U.S. American. Like I, Me Mexico, you can have twenty pesos for a dollar, and that's okay. It used to be when I was a kid, 12, around 10, 12 pesos for a dollar. And here in Colombia, it's 4,000. So if you have 200,000 pesos here, that's $50. If you have 400,000, that's 100. You can pay here for a really nice place uh, for $100 a month. You can pay for a nice studio. That's middle class. Most people like where I'm living here, and I'll talk about my living situation because I'm in a transitional home with lots of Venezuelans here. This is a uh, right here. You can I'm sharing a room by my choice because I like to live with people, not like to have my own space and feel like I'm in luxury. No, but I want to be with other people. Here, this is like we have one, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. We're five in one room here, and. That's the lives of most Colombians. So uh, it, it, the, it, it's one of the cheapest countries to come here to Latin America and South America. South America, I'll speak specifically because I, I don't want to get into 
um, how cheap is it in Central America, where I've also been. Um, so in South America, it's it's very cheap and it's just high inflation rates. And especially, but it's interesting though, though it even continues to be exporter of goods and petroleum, those haven't changed the, the economy here in, in Colombia. So imagine the situation that we have in Colombia already, the pandemic hits, you close down the economy and you exasperate the situation. What happens? I don't know what Duque, Ivan Duque, who was the, was the president at the time, thought in his crazy head, decided to raise taxes on people in April of 2021. Well, how are you supposed to survive if you're trying to keep your family, maintain your family, if Venezuelans aren't allowed to get a regular job because they don't have the papers to get a job, you have to work underground, under the table, excuse me. What are you to do? Tu nada más, tranquila. A ver tu saluda. This is my closest friend here. Oh, hello. <laughs> She's my roommate. She's from Venezuela. She's from um, Barinas. ¿De qué parte? Hoy se me olvidó. Socopo. Socopo. Socopo, Venezuela. I am from Socopo. Very good. She's from nice. Socopo. <laughs> uh, so you have this, the, the situation, the pandemic is only exasperating the situation. Folks can't take it. You can't work. My friend here can't get a regular job because she's Venezuelan until she gets some papers. It's a lot, a lot of red tape. And what do you do? You uprise. And that's what people did in April. They were like, on the 28th of April, that's when the major uh, protests happened. They say, we're not taking the shit. And I don't remember. Uh, 2021, yeah. correct? Last year. Last year. Yeah. Okay. So they did say, they, and then on still that, the healthcare system, they were deciding to, they were deciding. They were deciding to privatize also the healthcare system. So it just, it became layer after layer and people went out onto the streets, mostly in Cali and in Bogota. Thousands of people, thousands of people went. And during the 1st of May, International Workers' Day, it was the massive, massive, massive. And at first Duque, who's right wing here, uh, was hesitant. It was like, we're just going to change. We're going to modify the tax reform. But he, he said, no, we're not. We're not going to we're not going to withdraw the tax reform. Eventually, he did, but by that time, it was too late. People took it from the tax reform, made it un, made it about the inequality that exists in Colombia, and uh, the the classes divide that is happening here. So, uh, if you look at videos, one thing I admire, and I'll, I shared a picture. I hope you all got it. But one thing I admire is they said. And this is the same thing I heard, the sentiment. I don't know what happened to the Black Lives Matter movement, but the people who were leading it did not say this. It was the people on the ground who I went to go see in Berkeley, who I went to go join with. They said the same thing here in Colombia. And the Colombians will say it to you. We do not fear COVID. It's not that what we're fearing. We fear corruption. That's the real leaders here. We fear uh, inequality. So... The, that that's that I mean that says it all right. What is the real videos here? It's the corruption. That's what the people are worried more about. Not COVID. When people were asking them, and there are videos. Aren't you afraid of getting COVID? 
because, you know, you're out on the streets and we're supposed to be indoors. It's like, no, we're not afraid of COVID. We are afraid of the government abusing its power, using COVID as a way to, 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 to gaslight us. They didn't, I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like the sentiment is that, that, that they would be uh, just uh, COVID emergency response is another way to say, you know what, shut the fuck up. We're going to use this to control everyone because that's what we're doing now with COVID. And that's seen everywhere. I don't know why we didn't have, I mean, I always say this every time we have an episode, I'm coming back to my Eduardo back when we were doing the episodes. Like, why didn't, why didn't we do that? Why didn't we do that? No one did that. Everyone's happy doing lockdowns, which affected us, right? Even in the USA, it affected the, the working class folk. I don't understand why we didn't we rise up. I mean, mostly what conservatives did, but they were seen as cuckoo people. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, that, that's what drew me here. On a personal note, and I'm not sure if I want to share all of this, but on a personal note, you know, there were, the economic situation has driven young people to take extreme measures. Um, This, Colombia is amongst the top countries for webcamming services in the sex industry. Um, you know, everyone working from home, it's so cool, right? I appreciate those people who work from home doing something about it, speaking out. Uh, you know, but m- most people love being at home. It's a, I don't want to use it like in the liberal way, but it is a privilege. It is something that you can, it's nice, no? You can be at home and whatever. But what do you do in Colombia or in other countries? Most people are unemployed and you don't have profession or the economy doesn't give way for you to ex- uh, ejercitar, can you? To, to uh, exert? Like, no, like to carrera or to profession? Yeah, to carrera. Uh, to like... To, to employ, like no, to... Your training, I guess, or well, you go to college for, you know, using... Yeah, yeah, to ejercitar, to execute <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> to to do your 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 career right like what do you do you don't have an opportunity here what do you do so young people have turned to they want to do home office work as well and what home office work is available to people virtual sex camming in colombia the tourist the tourism industry went down at, in during the pandemic and so people turned hotels I mean, they, they have these empty buildings. They turn these hotels into studios. And people started making a business out of it. And here in Colombia, and you have as young as 18, and in some places younger, although they lie about their age, uh, 18 to 20-year-olds working in the sex industry. That, I think, for me, having gotten in contact with some of the folks here who are in that business in San Francisco, having the two-way communication about that through WhatsApp and talking about that and volunteering here at certain um, like rehab sites. Um, it just, I, I shared this with Andy and I'll share it with both of you. You know, when I was 18, 
I worked as an erotic model. I, you know, I, I did some sex work. I didn't prostitute myself on the streets, luckily, but I did do some sex work. And, you know, sometimes I feel kind of conflicted talking about it because people are like, yeah, well, it's empowerment and you should do your choice, your body, right? I think there were elements of that. There were also elements of just feeling like I, when I was hitchhiking from San Francisco to Massachusetts and I didn't have any money in the East Coast, I was like, I didn't know how to get, I didn't know how to generate any money. And I barely had a college education and I didn't know any better. And I was, I left being a Jehovah's Witness and, and I started off, I remember there was an ad for art modeling, um, you know, figure drawing. And so I did that. And then from there, someone said to me, you know, there's this other kind of modeling you can do, which is erotic work where, you know, you do positions, you do sex work and, or you give erotic massages, et cetera. And I did that. And it was, at first it was sort of like, oh, wow, an experience. Right. And then it was humiliating. And then it was like, sort of, it became really weird where I had like, <laughs> I remember feeling like, trapped in this bubble of sex work and feeling like I was just normal, but it was also weird and off and a bunch of things and feelings. And when you're that young, you don't know the consequences of the experiences that happen to you and how to defend yourself or how to make of it, or even just trying to register what's happening. Right. So when I volunteered, um, during the fourth fourth week, well, I think it was fifth week that I was here. It happened in June, this past June. A lot of the times I remember hearing, and I can see myself reflected in 18-year-olds talking about their experiences. And that's the reason why I wanted to join um, this uh, organization, which I can't talk about because they told me I couldn't mention it here. Uh, I'll tell you all offline. But I wanted to share that convivial, know that that peer-to-peer connection with folks and talk to, talking to them about um, their experiences and what they feel. I'm not going to say I was like being therapeutic or whatever. It was just more peer-to-peer. And I guess what I'm trying to say by it is that people in economic type extreme situations are willing to do anything. And especially be exploited in countries like Colombia. When I went to Cartagena, which is uh, touristy, it's known for its sex industry as well, but for prostitution, I saw lots of US Americans picking up women uh, that would sell themselves for $30, uh, 50 bucks. That's not a lot for a US American, but it is for a Colombian. And especially when you have a family to maintain. So I think what makes me upset is how much people called for the shutting down of economies when you already have fucked up economies and people do extreme things already. And I think about the kids in when we were closing down schools in the USA and how much that psychologically messed them up. And I think about the detrimental effects, not because of their 
education in school, but because of their social emotional aspect. And also for us, and we've discussed on many episodes. And here in Colombia, I think about people who have decided to join that, um, that industry. I mean, the reason why I have this idol, this, this light thing is because one of my housemates is a sex worker mm-hmm. and they use it. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, why don't I use it to set up for what's left? <laughs> but this is like, you know, we have a room on the other side here where it's private. It's like, uh, like a, just a wood wall and they work on privately um, next door. And there are studios nearby where we're at here in Bogota and people do this kind of work. And I've interviewed many sex workers now and, uh, you know, maybe I can do something separate from this episode where if people want to know those stories, I can share those stories. I have a few of them who would like to share it online, uh, but without giving their real names. Uh, so I think those are my, like, those are the things that drew me as we're talking about this country. What drew me were, obviously, I love traveling, but also my friends, my community, the COVID crisis, seeing what it's like here, getting a feel for it, getting a chance to see people's madness and anger and doing something about it, unlike what we did, which is basically become complacent and complicit mm-hmm. in the USA. Just, yeah. I just wanted to, um, you know, like kind of add to what you're saying, like, you know, sex work is one aspect. The other mm-hmm. aspect is because I know they uh, like serving as mules. You know, like, like Colombia has a long history of, of young people serving as mules, um, you know, especially uh, young, beautiful women. There is a big industry of um, what do you call plastic surgery in Colombia. And actually, there is a very, um, like, it's, Colombian women are ex, ex, exotized? Exoticized, yeah. Exoticized. Uh, also in part of as a result of the uh, narco culture that developed down there, you know, plastic surgery is very common. And like, I guess like the stereotype, you know, is that Colombian women and Venezuelan women are the most beautiful women there is, especially because they also win like uh, uh, beauty pageants, like, you know, the Miss Universe and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, like, uh, you know, we can talk into culture and stuff, but it's like all these things that I, as Eduardo was explaining, have exacerbated and and doesn't get talked about, you know, in public as a consequence of of all these policies that have just thrown so many people into, you know, um, more desperate ways of making a living. Because I know that Venezuelan women uh, in particular had to go into sex work as they migrated to Colombia because so actually, ironically, in my experience, as I was trying to, you know, live in Nicaragua, actually becoming a citizen of a lot of Latin American countries or a resident is really difficult, like, you know, in, in to work formally, because a lot of these countries have to protect their own economies, you know, from, I guess, quote unquote, threats of competing people. Uh, and so they're actually very protective, uh, you know, and, and so... I cannot imagine, you know, this happened also to Nicaraguans when they fled to, to Costa Rica. You know, when, uh, you know, when I, we talked about years ago, about 2018, what happened when the government started cracking down on people. And, and again, it's the same story that Eduardo is, is communicating. When I was in Nicaragua, I saw the exact same thing. 
young professionals, people with college degrees, actually more educated than Americans, you know, uh, with very few prospects. You know, I knew doctors in Nicaragua who happens to be in Colombia now, who was who, a doctor, he would rather work for a call center, you know, a, being a manager, managing US American, you know, like workers who work in remote rural areas of US who can barely read Americans, right? So these Nicaraguan managing Americans, right, that are also getting exploited. But then when shit happened in Nicaragua, he had to fled to Colombia. So there is a huge call center, you know, thing in Colombia. But so happens that a lot of my friends who fled Nicaragua with college degrees, professional class, they're in Colombia right now. So it's all these ties, you know, in Latin America, you know, economic ties. And again, I bring it back to capitalism, you know, and, and that, you know, that forced people to migrate for so many reasons. Yeah. Um, I want to see, Jessica, if you have either a comment or question about any of this stuff. So we haven't heard from Jessica. There's a couple questions. Maybe I'll just maybe I'll just throw out a couple and you can pick which one you want to answer, Eduardo. Oh, this is so interesting. Um, regarding the protests, yeah. I'm curious, um, both just in terms of how, like, what's your view of the of the government's sort of agenda? Like, are they carrying out this policy just kind of in lockstep like so many other countries? Um, and I know you mentioned like privatizing the healthcare and I'm wondering like, is that, I mean, how do you view that in terms of like, is are the draconian COVID policies, like has that been kind of a, a pretense by which to carry out that process? And, and has it been, completed um so i was wondering about that and then i was also wondering about the response like like you know it sounds like a lot of people out in the streets last year um what kind of response in terms of police and um like did they really crack down yeah and then i have a couple questions about some of the sex work stuff too but maybe i'll yeah. just pause well uh I forgot to add a disclaimer at the beginning of this show to say I don't pretend to be an authority or any sort of like knowledgeable person or expert on Colombia. No, I'll just speak to what I know and what people have shared with me and from just living like directly with people here, not like isolated and just viewing from afar. No, I mean, uh, so the the response to, well, first, as I said, the response to COVID was, yes, we're on board because the USA is saying this and we trust what the UN, what the UN is saying. And we trust what uh, the, the UN health official, I forget, um, what's his name now? I forget his name now. Um, is it the WHO though? Yeah, 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 yeah. WHO. I can't remember uh, that guy's name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's escaping me right now. Well, anyhow, yes, we are on board with it because we as well agree that COVID is a danger and everyone should get vaccinated and everyone should just stay at home. And we need to we need to live. We need to uh, live through this because we're in a hard time. Right. The healthcare system here, people died as well in hospitals, similar to what happened in Mexico. You have no knowledge as to why people are dying in, in hospitals. People are overcrowded. People don't trust going, leaving their families in hospitals. So they, so, uh, so then they had this suspicion and there are theories here as well as to 
again, it's like a Latin American thing as to like, is this really like COVID or is this something else going on? And is this leaked from a lab or what? You know, there are a bunch of conspiracies here. And these conspiracies aren't really seen as, um, come on, um, they're not seen as like fringy. Everyone kind of share these sort of these these sort of conspiracies. It's interesting. Whereas in the USA, if you have sort of this mindset, you're seen as like, whoa, right winger, Trump, you know. <laughs> uh, and the response to people's uprising, police crackdown. Colombia is known for its very strong military operations. Hundreds of people died during the protests last year that even artists like Shakira came out and said, well, hold on, this is too many deaths happening. And they were in support of peaceful marches, whatever that means. But police crackdown was brutal and Duque was criticized for it. And you have now people more angry over it because now not only the inequality, but also you have the layer of police brutality that has also been here for a long time and police corruption military corruption. In Medellin, where I was at, there's a place called Comuna 13. And that was like sort of the barrio, sort of very gangster ghetto area of Medellin. They called it La Cuna de el Narcotraficante de Pablo Escobar, where like they saw a lot of things that are um, drug related. And you could, there was all these alleyways and all this. And they made an operation when, when it was, Uribe, I think it was. Yeah, it was Uribe, president before Duque, uh, decided to enter this area. And the military Orion, military operation Orion, uh, Marical Orion, called, uh, they decided to go through and, and infiltrate and kill so many innocent lives because they were trying to do what El Salvador is doing now, crack down on uh, gangs and crack down on drug trafficking uh, sellers. But this is the way that the war on drugs is, right? So that experience from Colombia, same thing happened for during the uprisings. People went disappearing last year. Uh, military operations were justified. And deaths, no one cares about those deaths because it's all in the name of COVID because these people were uprising. And so we have to take care of everyone. And this is, you know, safer together <laughs> sort of approach. That was the response from the government. And even Uribe came out because this was during Duque last year. Uribe said, we support the military and our police and we have to be pro-police because they're what keep our families safe and they're keep our streets safe. I mean, people remembered back at a time in the 80s, Colombia was not safe. I don't, I mean, I probably could come here because I'm Mexican and I could blend in. You speak Spanish and all, but it wasn't very touristy at one point. So the uprisings last year gave this, and I'll talk about why these elections are important, they're connected to the uprisings, gave people these memories, like reflection back to the 80s and the 90s, to when it was very dangerous to be here in Colombia. It was dangerous to be in Medellin. Now everyone's traveling to Medellin and la la la, and people are having, and, you know, rumbiando, which is great. But um, people's memories, especially with older folk that I speak to, they remember those military operations, they remember the hard force that the government was on. And, you know, almost every single country in Latin America has been backed by U.S. dictator until the early 2000s 
which has been this pink tide wave, no? So that response did not sit well with Colombians, even though it did sort of hamper down the protests. Uh, which then, I'm sorry, I'm just making the connection with the elections, which is why these elections are significant, even though I do think it's a trap for people and it's sort of a comfort with Petro, Gustavo Petro winning, who is now the president. He just won uh, the 19th of June because the 29th of May I was here and there were several candidates and you have to win over 50% of the vote. Uh, otherwise there's a runoff. And so he went with, against Rodolfo, Rodolfo, I forget his name. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. He went against Rodolfo. So then there is this, this, this elections just demonstrate the reflection of what people want, which is new leadership, or they want some change in society, in Colombian society. It's interesting too, because Petro came from a guerrilla sort of background, do you know? Yeah. It reminds me of Rousseff in Brazil, who was, and we talked about this, if you remember, uh, who was also part of a socialist group, no? And um, Petro was also part of a guerrilla group. So there is this, it was seen at one point like, oh my goodness, we cannot ever vote for a guerrilla, un guerrillero. But now you have this response. So that's the response. It's the, the brutal attack on people and now the reflection of this election has shown that people want change. I don't know if I answered your question just. <laughs> it's sad. It really is because people talked about their experiences from the, from when they think about the uprisings last year, they talk about their experiences in the eighties and nineties. And I can only imagine how terrorizing it was. I mean, there's a lot you said there and I'll, Jessica, I'll see if you want to have a comment there, but the thing that really comes struck me is the description of the Colombian government going in with their military into so-called drug drug places, uh, drug centers. Yeah. What you're describing is very similar to what I think is what's, when the U.S. went into Afghanistan and goes city to city and goes into Fallujah and an operation, like an, an operation to go into there and you have people trained who are, who are defending, like protecting themselves, para, like literally trained military going in house to house taking people out, putting bags on their heads, shooting family, you know, all that kind of stuff. The thing that's significant to me is just like the war on terror is now being brought home when they talk about domestic terrors, domestic terrorists are now people who talk about COVID who might give COVID misinformation. The very same thing, people, these governments that say they're doing these operations to deal with drugs, then they come back and they do the very same operation on their own population in relationship to fighting COVID. So this is a time-tested thing. People now have to understand every time a government is doing those things to, in Afghanistan or Iraq, that's all the shit that they're prepared to do at home. Uh, I was going to say, this is, I think for folks, if anyone is listening to this, whether on podcast or YouTube, I think it's very important to understand that the US-American relations with Colombia are very important to understand because this is exactly the kind of thing that I think if there weren't up, I mean, if there were uprisings in the USA, this is, this is something I imagine could happen. I mean, Colombia was the first country to sign up for the School of Americas. 
which was to train Latin Americans uh, in military operations. And they committed some of the highest human rights abuses in, in Latin America. It's still like, we're still trying to find, I say we, but I'm, I'm not Colombian, but uh, you know, as a Latino, I feel this hermandad with everyone from Guatemala to Nicaragua to Argentina, every, like we're still trying to have the School of Americas disclose some of the disappearances that have happened of people, families, because of their operations. War on terror, after September, after the, after the September attacks, the war on drugs became the war on terror. And they started looking for guerrilla forces and giving military intelligence to Colombia to find the FARC, who I can, I can talk about, FARC, um, Fuerzas Armadas este, Revolucionarias de aquí de Colombia, which is the revolutionary uh, armed forces of Colombia. And I, I mean, I, I don't think we've had that much in Mexico because we still have the Zapatista movement out and strong. We, I'm sure there's some intelligence that is shared, but Colombia was so free and saying, yes, USA, help us find FARC, whatever. And I'm not necessarily in for FARC, which we can talk about. I'm, I'm saying like if any uprising, like COVID uprisings last year were to have, they're going to be tampered down. And who are behind those, uh, that, that, that force, the USA, of course, uh, giving that stronghold, that giving that respaldo, backup, you know? So it's, it's all connected, really. Um, but I don't know if anyone wants to make any comment. I can speak more to any of that if you wish me to. Um, I have a comment. Go. Um, so when, you know, COVID started and we started talking about, you know, COVID as a tool, right, for uh, control and for submission, you know, I, I feel like there was a question that often would come up. It's like, why would other governments buy into it? You know, and, and, and like at the time, I couldn't answer it fully. You know, like I had, I myself had questions, but you know, at least for me now, it's like regardless of the country, you know, the, the ruling class always has, you know, a stake in dominating and advancing their power and the submission of the working class. You know, a lot of these towns, th that operation that you just mentioned, right, doesn't just happen in Colombia. You know, it happens in California, in Oakland, with the SWAT teams. It happens in the favelas in Brazil. It happens in Palestine. It happens in areas of occupation. A lot of these areas, yes, you know, there are, you know, predatory characters. Absolutely. You know, that I'm not going to paint that, those communities as, you know, completely safe. But I grew up in one of them, you know, <laughs> and, and like, and we make a life, you know, where the state has very little power, you know, where people themselves run shit. Yes, there are predatory elements, organized crime. It, it, it does exist, you know, I'm not going to deny it. But they do have a level of independence from the state, you know. And, and, but these are potentially the people who will take a war against the state, you know, who will fed, get fed up because their conditions are at the line, at the limit, you know. And, and so it is to the, the, to the interest of any ruling class to keep the boot down on those people, you know, to keep the boot down on black communities here and brown communities, the poorest communities, white communities too. You know, the, you know, working class, poor whites, you know, it, it's to their advantage. And so, yes, COVID provided, you know, a, a, a cover for, for many, you know, and every country has different issues to address, every ruling class different issues to address. But, you know, uh, but if they have the opportunity, they will, 
because and that's what's at stake for everyone, every nation, you know, to, to follow this, you know, COVID bullshit, even Cuba, you know, following this COVID bullshit. Yeah, I just wanted to add to like, I think this is part of like the huge misunderstanding that I think so much of the anti-lockdown, you know, groups in the United States, like just can't wrap their head around, I guess, because of partisan politics largely. And like now living in a more of a Republican area, like you see this, like a lot of the people who were against all of this stuff. And, you know, it's obviously a very different environment in which to resist. Like, okay, I had like some stuff thrown at signs and stuff like that, but it's not even on, you know, the same level as, and, you know, I'm unfortunately I'm not that surprised to hear that the crackdown from the police was intense. And we saw that in so many different places in the global South, people literally being, you know, beaten, like beaten in broad daylight um, for disobeying a curfew, um, let alone like the shot. Um, but back to, back to the point I was trying to make is just like this, like so much of the anti-lockdown people in the United States are so pro-military and so pro-police. And it, it just, it just continues to astound me because it's like, who do you think is going, who are going to be the ones to carry out the government's handiwork when they decide they don't want to let you resist anymore um and that yeah like the whole kind of what you were saying andy about um you know domestic populations off especially you know in rich western countries not understanding that like the things that they try out elsewhere out of sight um will eventually come back like they will event like they're always going to be willing to do that on their domestic population and you know, so a lot of it, like that's, that's where they do their experiments, right? Like whether it's military, whether it's public health, like, you know, um, soldiers even, right? Like not even talking about the populations that are being droned or being occupied, right? But like even the soldiers themselves, like they're oftentimes the, the medical experimentees historically and today. Um, yeah, it's just, go ahead. I can, or, <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's raising their hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I want to say something about what Eduardo mentioned when he said that the people in Colombia initially went along with this because this came from the WHO or this came mm -hmm. from the UN. Or what, I just the guy's name, Tedros Gebra, oh, yeah. Gebra Jesus or something like that. Tedros. Uh -huh. Tedros. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but let's be clear. I think a lot of people say, oh, look, this is, see, do you see how the WHO controls, the UN controls? And here, let me, let me be, do you really think that's where the message came down? That's how the message is sold to the population. But if they said who really, where that message was really coming from, that it comes from US empire, that it comes from the US, US ruling class using these institutions as mouthpieces to then say, here's how you're going to sell it because the US ruling class and the Colombian ruling class are in alignment. Now, of course, the, U, the Colombian ruling class has to do what they're told. But, there, but there's a relationship. There's a symbiotic relationship of state control. It's, it's run by the U.S., but the rulers in, in Colombia are like, yes, if we, if we hitch our wagon to these people, this is how we'll do it. That's, what, that's why what we're seeing with Zelensky in Ukraine. If I hitch my wagon to the U.S., we can do what we want to do. 
of course, the, the, the power, I do believe, ultimately originates and the interest originates out of the U.S. at least in terms of the West and in terms of building Western empire. But the, these, these institutions like the WHO and the UN, that's how these, these places in Latin America and South America can sell to their population. They can't say, oh, yeah, I just talked with Donald Trump. I, I was meeting with the people from Operation Warp Speed. This is what we got to do. <laughs> you know, no, that's not how it goes. You can't do that. It's like you have to give it a cover. And that's exactly how these, these multinational institutions that much of the left and much of the libertarians think are looking to control things. That's not what's running this thing. The WHO did not train the paramilitaries in Colombia on how to do that shit. That comes from the U.S. So people got to get their fucking minds right about this stuff. The U.N. has no army. It will never have an army. The U.S. has an army. China's building an army. Russia has an army. That's where this fight fight is going to come from. So I'm, so I'm kind of getting tired of hearing about the WHO and the U.N. thinking like they do anything. Those are complete cover stories. And they are used as cover stories so they can get people to do things that they know are not in their best interests. So it's like, again, I'll just say that. Never mind. So I read a quote that I think will talk about all this in like the COVID response, the difference in like the, the, the global South versus, you know, the economic North. Uh, so this is from uh, Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, in the first chapter on, on violence. That's what the chapter is called. And it says, in capitalist countries, a multitude of sermonizers, counselors, and Confucian mongers intervene between the exploited and the authorities. In colonial regions, however, the proximity and frequent direct intervention by the police and military ensure the colonized are kept under the close scrutiny and contained by rifle butts and napalm. We have seen how the government's agents use the language of pure violence. And so, you know, that's, and I, I think that's going to change here in the U.S., you know, that we have these experts telling us what the fuck is happening, confusing us, you know, and the people who are the lowest, you know, you know, in the totem pole, I guess, they see through the bullshit. This is why I talk about the uneducated a lot. You know, this is why I think a lot of people in Latin America are cynical about COVID, you know, in, in, in about elections in the government. You know, you know, I would dare and say, I don't know fully, right? But I would dare and say that the people who vote in these countries, you know, they tend to be middle and upper class who really care about the elections. The people from the bottom, they know it's bullshit either way, as people here do know, you know, it, it, that they're all in it in, in one way or another, you know, even these new president, you know, in some way. And yet, you know, it, and so again, that, that difference, I think, as we're talking about the evolution of, in the, in the, I guess the evolution away from the quote unquote liberal democracy, we're gonna see more rifles in napalm, you know, in order to contain the poverty or, or the, the, the reactionary, you know, the reactions that happen out of increased pillage and poverty. We, we are gonna become more familiar to the experience of Colombia and, and the favelas in Brazil and the favelas in Guatemala and Mexico, you know, and, and, and so, you know, but I guess people still, like you said, uh, you know, by these narratives that, you know, these institutions are there to protect us, uh, by the narratives that, you know, you should just be peaceful in that in, by being following the rules and waiting your turn in line is how you're going to change the system, you know, and, and so, yeah, it is exhausting. And, and that's why, you know, at least for me, I keep listening to the people from the bottom, you know, they, if you actually care to but in this country there's so much reliance on quote unquote fucking experts 
you know, that we don't have a fucking opinion. And, and then we clamp down on people who theorize, right? Like, like you were saying, Eduardo, in Colombia, like the, they, they find all this shit suspicious. Shit doesn't add up. You know, if, if you really see like in the poor communities, how much, you know how they were pushing those videos, right? Of COVID, people were just falling in this and that on the streets. We know that was complete bullshit and no one, like, you know, no one's talking about, but yet it created an effect and we allowed them to do it. You know, it, it, it's just insanity in this fucking country, you know? And that's why I'm like scared of actually the more educated people because they are the most unwilling to see what the fuck is behind the curtain of lies. Eduardo, when I think this ties in, um, you you mentioned that you kind of think some of this, and I think you were talking about in relationship to the recent election, but that it's like a trap to some extent. What did you mean? Can you talk about that? Well, um, yes. Yeah, so let me, I wanted to comment just before I lose my thought on what we were just talking about. And then yes, talk about that. Uh, for the U.S. American audience, which is largely what we, people who listen and view this channel slash podcast, I think it's important just to, uh, I was going to say resume, summarize, that it's, um, it's, it's these covers, right? It's these boogie covers, boogie, boogie person covers of, you know, uh, the Red Scare, right? the war on drugs, the war on terror, and immigration. And then it's, it's uh, now uh, we're seeing COVID and monkeypox or whatever. You know, it's, it's these scares of trying to control massive amounts of people and populations by justifying their means because of all these, these, these different <laughs> scares that I just mentioned, right? And I hope that people who listen to this especially people who you know are sort of in the middle about COVID or whatever that they understand that outside of the U.S. there's a difference there's a different response and it's people are more because of how their governments have been people are more uh, more skeptical and you know in Mexico it's people laugh. You say you want to become a politician and change the country. Like there's no politician that's going to be like, they just don't see politicians being the answer. And so the elections to Kenny's point, yes, the elections here are for most people, they don't vote. There's a low turnout and people here who do vote tend to be either on the very end of the spectrum of feeling like there's they're hopeless and they just think that maybe this is the thing they should do, or they tend to be middle class. Yeah, most people tend to be middle class. And I said over half of the population here in Colombia are in poverty. So you're losing a big chunk of people. Now, you have after the elections, I'll get to uh, Jessica's question. You have after the elections, this, uh, what is this? I wanted to say also the scare are similar to here in Colombia, by the way. They're not just to USA. Like I did say the war on terror, like Colombia was the first, one of the first countries to support uh, the U.S. Uh, back, the U.S. American war in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. They were willing to send soldiers as well, by the way. <laughs> uh, so they were very supportive as well as they congratulated Obama when they got, they cut Osama bin Laden. So there's this, this strong tie, and Colombia is very, very on board with 
all that counterterrorism uh, action. Uh, and then, you know, using those intelli that intelligence to be able to fight here in uh, the, um, the drug war. So when you have um, this sentiment, people look for leaders. And Petro was one of those leaders. Petro, <laughs> Petro reminds me, similar to AMLO, comes from poor working class, uh, also a little bit fringy, weird. You know, AMLO was alcalde, the mayor of Mexico City. Uh, Petro, the mayor of Bogota, the capital here. Um, he's now, he was a senator, now he's the president-elect. And you have, you have uh, Petro being, um, trying three times, three attempts in trying to win this presidential election, similar to, similar to AMLO, three times, again, third time the charm. So it reminds me of these similar ideas. And AMLO as well thought that <laughs> prosecuting, prose <coughs> prosecuting, uh, Drug traffickers wasn't the right means to go about this. It was more about amnesty and transition and trying to get rehab, similar to Petro. And I, I mentioned he was part of the guerrilla force, right? AMLO didn't come from a guerrilla force. AMLO came more from like, you know, just uh, like an activist community fighting against uh, environmental disasters in pueblos. And Petro comes from this guerrilla force, which is now, I think, They've disseminated. They don't exist anymore. I think it's ML19. Well, I wrote a few notes because I think it's important. Then I'll get to Jessica's question uh, of the things that he's been campaign. Well, he campaigned on, and I was at some of these rallies, and I and I remember writing some of these things. So he he really is about. Um, oh, his vice president is Francia Marquez. She is Afro-Colombian, and she was a running candidate as well. And so she she lost. She was she didn't gain much of the votes, but she became his vice president. And so they ran under this campaign of equality, inclusion, and making sure that they addressed the inequality that was being discussed during the uprisings of last year. And he also talks about increasing the taxes on on on, on unproductive land, on raising the taxes on the rich, uh, free university education and changing the way Colombia fights the war on drugs, moving away from uh, just um, more security focused policies to more uh, like his predecessors, more like, uh, like I had said, rehab, transitioning, amnesty, and also convincing farmers to change their, voluntarily change their products uh, to crops rather than coca leaf. Because of course, Colombia is, it is true that it is one of the exporters of cocaine. Uh, biggest exporters of in the world and that the economic reasons for it no so and with Francia Marquez being Afro-Colombian she was an environmentalist activist she's also comes from working class background she was pregnant at 16 years old and she was also uh one of the leaders in like promoting ethnic communities LGBT issues <laughs> as the women's rights all of that and combined with Petro and uh, and that was sort of giving the hope for Colombians and uh, during because of last year and all of that to today, and uh, which I side note I, I I do think that there is like this weird but inclusive but also discriminatory side of Colombia 
with its black population. I will say Colombia does recognize their black population, unlike in Mexico, where you know, in Costa Chico de Guerrero, where there's a black community in Veracruz, where it's a black Mexicans in closer to Belize, there's also in the South black Mexicans. And Me Mexico is very, I'm sorry, I'm talking about it. It's just for me, it's like the difference I noticed here. For me, it's just so red. It's like it just I see differently through my Mexican lens that Mexico is such a racist country. They refuse to even recognize them in the census, black Mexicans until 2015. So we hadn't even recognized them for a while. In Colombia, no, you you recognize black. I mean, you know, you have black populations and you're going to recognize them. So Francia Marquez talks about that. And she really is speaking to a population. And if you look at the map where the where people voted for Francia Marquez, you can see it's on the coast where most black populations are in Colombia. So I I really thought that was an interesting thing for me to see how the differences in from my lens to to that. Uh, so anyhow, back to Petro and Francia Marquez. So they're they're this hope thing, but I, I set a trap because it's now coming out that Petro is saying <laughs> he's going to meet with anybody. And he just met with Uribe, one of the right winger. This is the left, this is this is the first left wing president elect uh, government you that Colombia has ever had. And he's now just met with Uribe. I'm like, what do you need to meet with Uribe with? Didn't he create the largest operation in Medellin, in Comuna 13? And didn't he also uh, terrorize the community by trying to pretend like we're doing this for your safety against uh, uh, drug gangs, but really targeted people who were innocent, like in El Salvador also, that's happening. I mean, I understand people's fear, but if you don't, if you don't, if you put your hopes in the government, the government is not going, the government is going to then use that, that support to carry out their own agenda. And Petro is showing that he's just meeting up with predecessors. He's willing to talk to anybody. Uh, this March, 2022, this March, Biden just met with Duque, who was former. And now Duque is communicating with Petro about those meetings. And that's coming out in the news now. And you'd think this radical from a guerrilla force would do something different. He's also now saying, I think some of my plans are going to be stalled by Congress because we don't have a majority. Uh, so you give this hope, you, these promises, but now we have to re-elect or newly elect new Congress folks in order to carry out your promises. <laughs> so, I, so I'm thinking this is a long way to go for Colombian people because all these promises about taxing the rich and taxing unproductive land and making sure you address inequality and making sure that Colombia's economy changes and inflation rates, uh, inflation, uh, inflation doesn't affect us, uh, affect Colombia. It, it's, it's all these promises. I don't know how you're going to reach them if you have to do this, 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 this under a system that's going to, it's against you. Obviously, there's a lot of things that like in the corrupt, they have a corrupt military, you have a corrupt police, and you have corrupt uh, politicians. You're just not going to be able to carry out what you just said. And I think for me, it feels kind of disheartening to see how many Colombians like see their, not everyone, but they see their hope there. They, 
their their protests meant something you know it's their protests are are what created this petro and and that's wonderful right we've gotten somewhere but i don't think i just don't i don't see everything being addressed it's wonderfully and nice but you just came from guerrilla force like Rousseff, who was socialist, and now you're into this system, you're not going to create the change that you say you would come out with. So I'll be clear, like, I don't know a ton about Petro. You know, I've been reading more, uh, but I recognize him. You know, he is familiar. He is AMLO. He's Bernie Sanders. He is, you know, um, Rousseff, and, you know, in some ways, like, I think he has a complicated relationship with Maduro, right? Who's co who called him uh, the cowardly left. Um, you know, I'm not saying Maduro is the way either, you know, that ran because like, I do think there's a difference between Petro and Maduro and Kirchner and Rousseff. It's a bit of a difference because those other, the previous red pink type that they called it, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, was about creating a, what, that was the reformist way. <laughs> That was creating their own brand of capitalism. And, and they thought they could win, right? Because they had petroleum in, in their hands with Venezuelan money. They thought that if they made an economic block, they could uh, fight the empire. I, I do think they had intentions of, of fighting you know, back and creating their own shit. But look at where we're now. You know, look at what has happened. You know, the, the, the empire responded. You know, let's say they were also pulling you know, to the, the side of the people. Let's just assume that. But look at the results. That's the reformist way. You know, fascism is more on the rise, you know, and in terms of like pure fucking violence, we're going back to the 80s, you know, in Latin America. You know, that shit is coming again. You know, I think some people have forgotten, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died in the name of fighting communism, you know, and, and, and so I, I don't, you know, it is a trap. I agree with you, Eduardo. You know, just like why... And again, the fact that they chose a black woman, right? It reminds me of fucking like Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. I don't know. Sorry, some people get offended because I mispronounce it. But, um, you know, it's the same shit. It's about voting. It's about bringing people into the fold of the system. And in that case, I don't think they're appealing to the lower classes. Yes, of course, they wanted the black vote of the coast. But... You know, they're appealing to the middle class, the people who, who, who buy this, you know, identity politics bullshit, who are, tend to be the more educated people, you know, because in the barrios, yes, there is a lot of fucking pedos, you know, there's, there's shit that's wrong, you know, but it's not less civilized than, you know, educated classes. That's why I hate San Francisco. San Franciscans think they're fucking more civilized and they address this shit. No, like the, 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 the barrio that I come from, we had to, you know, we had queer people and thieves and sex workers and, you know, all people from all lives and making a living together, you know, and, and we've dealt with it in some ways, you know, and I'm not saying it's not perfect or it doesn't need to change and there doesn't, there doesn't need to be advocacy, but don't pretend that this middle-class bullshit is what is going to change the world, you know, because then you get people like Petro, you like people, you know, like AMLO, like Bernie Sanders, you know, who do a lot more damage in retarding what needs to happen, which is enough fucking uprising against our governments everywhere. You know, and, and, and so it is a massive trap. We talked about Maso Menos in, 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 you know, like our episode Maso Menos in Bolivia, right? That uh, under, uh, in, 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 in uh, Deya, 
they uh, talked about it too. She's from Ecuador, right? She talked about the left in Latin America in so many ways has done more damage. She's not a right winger, but if you criticize the left, apparently you're a right winger. You know, but it is true. Look at Nicaragua. I lived in Nicaragua, right? We're talking about Colombia, Latin America. And yes, a lot of these leftist people come and do a lot more pillage and damage, you know, and, and then when people respond, then, you know, the more, uh, the butt of the rifle comes out, right? Napalm, you know, like, like I read that quote. So again, yes, I don't buy it. You know, I think it's dangerous. You know, I think people should still raise hell, you know, like whether it's Petra or anybody else. Because again, like you said, Eduardo, the Darius system does not design to be changed from within, not here, not anywhere, you know? And, and, and so it, people are going to have to do what's happening in, in, in the, uh, with, the Dutch, with the Dutch right now, what happened in India too, right? Like the Dutch, like farmers were fucking moving shit like, uh, you know, like the police, you know, like uh, SWAT team trucks. This, the farmer was pushing it with their fucking, you know, uh, tractors, you know, throwing shit at Congress, you know. And then here in the U.S., this is the scary part, right? We are supporting the persecution of patsies, right? Because of the January 6th thing, right? So we want to change the, wor the world without storming into the houses of power, right? So, so we're supporting our own, our own persecution, really, you know, by, per by supporting that shit. You know, and, and, and so I guess I just bring it back to Petro. I don't know his politics. I really don't care to know his politics because social change, fundamental change, change, aka revolution, doesn't happen with from the top down. Doesn't happen with a savior. You know, it happens collectively from the bottom up. And so, you know, and, and so I don't really care about his politics in the sense that you know it's not going to change the life of Columbus. If anything. I think I would be watchful because like we said, when they pick people from a certain community, like a black woman, like Kamala Harris, it's gonna be an attack on black women. You know, they're, they're, they're using a cover, you know, for shit. in Colombia has, again, very close ties to the US in their tactics, in their, you know, uh, you know exploitation of, of people and land, in the bullshit that they use. And, you know, uh, I understand that in some way he might symbolize Petro, you know, in this new government. It does in some way symbolize the, the desperation, right? Like just like we said that Trump symbolized some sort of like, people do like, you know, some shit doesn't add up, but, but we are kept within this frame of analysis, right? Right or left, right or left. And, you know, and, and, and then, you know, we fight each other and they still get away with fucking robbery. Yeah, I mean, like you, Kenny, like, I don't know enough about Petro's politics or him, you know, his background to really feel like I can give a prognosis, but I don't know. I mean, a lot of this, like it, you start to notice these patterns, you know, and I, I hear a lot of the same buzz and a lot of the same um, discussions going on around, you know, other um leftist quote-unquote politicians you know coming up in Central America and South America I'm thinking of like uh what's the new guy in Chile's name who's like a um but like he's kind of like this like you know sort of progressive liberal but like 
nobody wants, I mean, it's not like I want a right-wing government anywhere, of course. And then in Honduras, right, you have the first woman president, Shalmara, who again, like, yes, we're all celebrating that she's more left and we're celebrating the identity politics. And I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I kind of take that part with a little bit more of, I guess a little bit less of a grain of salt than I do in the United States, because I do think that, I don't know, like the first, you know, um, Afro-Colombian, like, I'm not sure that that means nothing. I'm not quite sure what to think. And I'm not the same thing with Shalmara, but yeah, I mean, ultimately it's like, it's the same patterns. And if I've learned anything the past couple of years, the left lies way more than the right, right? Um, they're the ones that put up these covers that that we've been talking about. And I don't know, it's just, I think we need to realize that we just have to reject the state altogether. I mean, I'm just becoming more of an anarchist every day. I just, um, it's always a trap, right? Like this isn't unique. It's always a trap. So I don't know. That's, that's my assessment. Yeah. And I, I know a little bit about some of those policies, but frankly, I actually think the more you know of the, of the detailed policies, the more you're seeing trees and not forest. And actually part of that is the confusion because what's the story here? The story has been Colombia as being mini U.S. in South America. And so what did you have? You had Duque, who was considered the Trump of Colombia, who pissed everyone off and everyone uprises because he does it. And now they've got a black female vice president and a a kind of progressive, you know, person who seems charming. I mean, Biden ain't charming. But the word hope, the word hope was the word that was really the synonymous with Obama. But essentially, they're just doing stuff directly out of the neoliberal Democratic Party playbook. So to me, this guy and this woman and this whole project looks to me like a U.S. project. It looks exa- it looks like exactly by the U.S. the U.S. playbook. And in fact, this this guy Pedro Pedro had been complimentary of Biden and very much like I don't want Trump. I'm I'm more with Biden. So really, what they're saying is we're going to fuck you harder as the ex FARC than the guy before, because you're gonna, you're gonna go for it. You're gonna buy the con. And I really agree with Kenny that the, the best way to know who they're gonna go after is look at the face of the representation that's there to do it. It has nothing to do with saying, in the same way that here it's an illusion, actually it's a, it's a, it's a tip of the hand to who's about to get the, get the, the sharp end of the, of the knife in them. That's the way that I think Colombians have to see it the same way. It means that there, there's about to be a doubling down of the attack. And the thing that people don't understand, I did see this discussed among socialists, which is, okay, like, well, you know, maybe he's not perfect, you know, but the thing is, is what's going to happen when this guy who's gorilla, FARC, basically savages his own population in the name of the left, in the name, where do you think people are going to go then? Do you think they're going to look for more left? No, they're going to go back the other way. And so Duque is going to be like, nothing compared to the next guy who comes or the next woman who comes. That's how this goes. That the way you assure that you get a more and more vicious ruling class is by not fighting for the actual thing that you need rather than take that, well, we'll make that compromise and we'll call that Bernie Sanders socialism or Chamorro or, you know, uh, uh, Boris or, you know, the, the various leaders who have all, like what we saw in, how did we get Bolsonaro? We went from, um, 
I was going to ask about Brazil because Lula is like. Yeah, we went from Lula, projected to win in the fall, and, right? To Bolsonaro, and we'll get a we'll get a tamped down version of Lula because Lula's Lula this time ain't going to be the same as last time. He's going to be more behaving, and then he's not going to do shit other than bring neoliberalism because there is to me, and I think the thing you said, Kenny, the the emphasis on the pink tide before was okay. We might challenge the United States. And now that's over. They're not even talking about it. now the pink tide isn't even about challenging the United States. It's like we're making we're going to side with the United States against Russia and against China. We understand that our we understand the world is getting divided up. And our future is if we make if we go with our guy, the bully up north and let them understand we're on board with your project. We're on board. We're on board with this side of World War Three. We're going to be with NATO. And that's what this is about now. These folks are saying that we will align ourselves more successfully is if we pick this side. I actually think they're picking the loser here, but that's what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, I agree with you. That's what's happening. Pick your side, because if you're not with us, you're against us. That's what's going to happen in Latin America. And, you know, in, 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 it's always happened. But I think that uh, we are getting up for something massive where, you know, it will matter even more like what side you're on. You know, leftists, I've been reading some articles, are excited about this pink tide wave. Esta gira la izquierda. You know, this esta ola izquierdista. Is there are, I met up with a few, like there were some Petro um, campaign sites. I went into their buildings. I talked to them. I had them talk to me about their politics. And they're excited because they said, when I said I'm Mexican, they said, you know, your country kicked off this pink tide wave because in 2018, that's when AMLO uh, began this progressive wave, you know, and then it was 2019 Argentina, and then it was 2020 Evo Morales, and then 20, 2021 is Honduras, uh, and then you had Peru and Chile. And I, I know who you're talking about, Jessica, with uh, in, in, in Chile. I just forget the name. A millennial uh, candidate that won. Yeah. Um, so there is this excitement, right? And I, I understand the sentiment that people are feeling because for a long time, especially in Latin America, almost every single country was backed, well, every leadership was backed by a U.S. American dictatorship, right? Andino in Honduras, right? Este, Armas y Mont in Guatemala. Um, the the revolution, institutional revolutionary party in Mexico and uh, Pinochet in Chile and uh, Jimenez in Venezuela. And the list goes on and on before Chavez, right? Like there were so many right wing uh, politicians that this left wing wave is sort of this excitement that I feel that people are having, izquierdistas, the leftists are having here. I'm not I, I wasn't going to debate or argue. I was just listening, right? That's my that's like my tour that I do in Colombia. Like I listen to people's conversations and they're talking about the reasons why Venezuela is the way that it is. It's because it's a dictatorship. I'm thinking to myself, well, that is exactly what started. I mean, 2010s were the beginnings of this pink tide. If you have Nicaragua and Venezuela and you count on them. And so I think that, you know, you 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 that it's one transition to the next. I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not going to be sharing the same excitement as I used to, as both of you know, Kenny and Andy. I myself was in Mexico during the Mexican pres presidential elections, and I had also this sort of 
you know, at that time, progressive feel for a new change in Mexico because it was the first time, just like here, it's the first left-wing candidate that won in Colombia. It's the first time that we had a party that won breaking away from that two two system, even though we have multiple parties, but they hardly won. And I expected something out of the AMLO, out of the AMLO um, presidency. And there have been reforms, but most of it now, and that's why I share my experience here on what's left, it is now more of a disappointment and moving me away, especially after the whole pandemic, obviously, right? Like we've talked about this before on my own journey, but just to share about like why I don't share this excitement anymore is because of my own disillusionment with my own country and AMLO's elections, which I participated in, you know? And now <laughs> I see Mexico doing the dirty work of the U of US American operations, right? Like I, I feel so bad and I, I tell me if I'm moving away and digressing. I am here in this house. My roommates are Venezuelans, everyone here. My little, I have a little friend here that comes and visits me. He likes to hear my accent and he thinks I'm funny, whatever. I, I don't, you know, whatever. He comes and he imitates me. He's from Venezuela. He's four years old. I have a video of him and he dances, breakdown dances and whatever. I'm in this transition home where the owner is Colombian. And all these country, all these, all these, uh, all these people here are Venezuelan, and they're going to either Spain or they're going trying to use to go to US, the USA. And just this week, I was talking to one of them that now is in a detention center in Texas, and he was, we were here. He was talking to me, and he was on the bed. I was sitting on this couch. We were having a great conversation, and. I think it's important to share these stories, I feel, because it gives the humanity to the politics that we talk about. And he is so desperate to go that he was saying he had to use his Colombian side because Colombians can go to Mexico, but Venezuelans can no longer go. Why? Because we make it harder now. We make people pay thousands of dollars for visas for Venezuelans, but not for Colombians. And so he had to use his Colombian's father's side, I think it was, in order to go into Mexico throw out his Colombian papers and then ask for political asylum in on the border. And he's at a detention center right now. He's half Venezuelan, half Colombian. And he has these beautiful dreams of being uh, a rumba dancer and all this. And I just disheartening because I'm sitting here with my privileges, so to speak, of being able to travel up and down with two passports and just talking to people. And everyone here wants to leave. And that's what my country has done. It's, it's done the dirty work of the USA of, because I believe in a world of open borders. I believe in a world where we are free of borders. And what has Mexico done? It has rounded up immigrants. It has put them in detention centers. It hasn't allowed them to enter. And that is one of my disappointments because it's so prominent here that people talk about immigration. They always talk to me about immigration because all of Latin American countries go through Mexico because we're on the border. And so obviously I've seen so many people from Latin America and I'm here in Mexico. I represent for them their entryway. Like I am one of the people that they're going to encounter once they go to the border. And I, that's for me thinking to myself how I don't, I've shared over this episodes that I don't share any more of those. I don't have those hopes anymore in 
in these in these candidates and governments that I used to be a part of and I've shared of and been a campaign of even in San Franciscan politics and locally. Um, it's something I'm still dealing with. I'm trying to figure out what is the answer, right? Because if you look at the FARC, it isn't what it used to be. In 1964, the Marxist-Leninist group, this was guerrilla force, the peasant force. It was supposed to be this armed force. And, uh, and that's why Petro is popular because of it, right? And, and they were known to be of the working class, but they've turned into this weird, awful guerrilla force where they're funded by, um, kidnaps, uh, extortion now, um, taxing sort of como las plazas, Kenny, they like sites where they, they ask for certain money out of businesses. And I'm not saying that like the entire history of that is horrible. I'm just saying the recent things that have come out from that. And I'm speaking to Colombians, not people from the media. I'm not talking about the media, but I'm just talking to people uh, when I was traveling through Colombia. It's like, for me, I'm struggling like, okay, where well, we're not, I'm not going to vote or putting my ballots in the garden, or I'm not going to, you know, like also be joining some, some force, some guerrilla forces also corrupt because it, it, they've lost in touch with their values, but what they originally tried to become, which is a peasant force Marxist Leninist group. That's now not that it's, 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 it's twisted. It's distorted. No, I don't, I don't know how, so I'm still struggling. I wish that there's still, I, I, I'm hoping for me, as I'm sharing this, I'm, I'm trying to find my way, right? I'm just trying to find my way. It's becoming a little personal what I'm saying here, but it, I'm just trying to find my way. How do we organize our community, our people to try to up, up against this, this, not only just the fourth industrial revolution, but the cynicism and the corruption that exists in the world. No, it's just thoughts that I'm having out loud as we're sharing this and as I shared my own journey on what's left. No, and, and in fact, our episode with Allison two weeks ago really came that we were struggling with that same question. Um, so that is where we've been. You know, I think that that question is not to be answered right now. I mean, but I think it is the one that people are trying who are fighting this stuff are trying to figure out. I just wanted to say it. I, to me, this immigration issue is so big here for me. It's just, I want to share something that I think it would be impossible to share on YouTube. But I was watching a video that they were sharing with me because they share videos with themselves like on WhatsApp and their journeys. And I know this is off, like what we're, but just thinking about, because it's in my mind, the visuals. I'm watching these videos on WhatsApp that, my friends here are sharing with me of people dying in the jungle because they cannot cross. They cannot go to Mexico because they're charging them for visas or they're denying them or they're returning them after paying thousands of dollars just to get to Mexico, to get their passport, to get their plane fare, to get their visa and still to get lodging and to pay their coyote and then being rejected and then being sent back to Venezuela 
or and then when they weren't even in Venezuela, they were in Ecuador, they were in Colombia, or they were in Chile, being sent back to Venezuela, or even the Central Americans in Panama, where I see these videos of corpses and skeletons that are just, I cannot sleep just having seen these videos on WhatsApp that are being shared with my compañeros here, with my friends that I'm looking at and thinking people are willing to do anything and they're desperate and they're willing to take their kids. And I'm thinking of my little neighbor here who's Venezuelan, whose family, they're they're trying to go to Spain, but if they cannot, they're going to cross that jungle. And I'm thinking, Jesus, the fuck? Like, I cannot see myself even doing that. Do you know? I mean, I literally saw Andy. Like, I saw half, like, half deteriorated bodies, like skeletal bodies in Panama. And these videos, they try, they, they record these videos, not to be so morbid about it, but rather to try to identify by either clothing or face recognition, or some part of themselves for their families. It just, it's just horrendous what people go through in order to reach a better life, you know? It just, and I feel so, I don't know, I feel weird being here in this home with everyone who's going to leave eventually in a couple of months. People are in and out of this home. It just, to me, it touches my heart, so... (laughs) And I feel so guilty that it's like my country is so like used as this titere, you know, this puppet to to do this dirty work, you know. So well anyhow. I I guess I would just say that people should not misunderstand though when you're talking about immigration, that you are talking about the fourth industrial revolution. Because all of these things that have been about controlling the flow of workers across national boundaries are about to be generalized with vaccine passports and QR codes and digital IDs. But this is about controlling people's motion. And the desperation that you're describing, that has at least to a person just to be prepared to risk dying in the forest or dying in the jungle and being deteriorated there, that's the kind of desperation that is there for all of us that is no longer about national boundaries, but about can you get to work? Can you go to that school? Can you go into that store? I mean, that's the world that is being set up. It's a world of control. And, it's, and it, it really is a trap of death that for all of us uh, if, we, if we go forward into it. Yeah, I feel like everything you've shared, Eduardo, like so much of it just annihilates American and, and Western understandings of safety, especially the ones that they've pushed these past few years. Like everything, I mean, you're scared of a virus? with like a 99.9% recovery rate, like, come on, <laughs> how, how are we still there? Right. And it's like, it relates to the, the sex work issue that you're talking about. And like, like, are these choices really choices? No, like, no, when you look at the circumstances, you look at the history, um, they're not. And then, you know, in these, like the most extreme, right. Like literally dying, trying to cross a fucking invisible line <laughs> between countries um yeah it's really sad no just like it's just echoing what you all said and just i mean like i tried to i guess share my perspective that this is not just the mexican southern border <laughs> you know this is a global thing you know that the amount of immense suffering and 
loss of life and misery that, you know, it's brought upon the world. Um, and, sorry. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's the reason, like, I, I like to speak up and do my part and like try, I'm, I'm just like you, all of you, us here, we're trying to figure out what, what is it, you know, and, you know, and at the same time that I, you know, I hear these stories, right? And like, I had family members, people that I know, you know, like I know the price of the coyote from El Salvador to San Francisco. Can you imagine how much is the price you know, like from El Salvador here, it's like eight to ten thousand dollars right now. <laughs> you know, like who the hell has this when you're earning two hundred dollars? You know, like as a minimum wage, and most people are earning less than that. But um, so again, it, it, and it's not just about those people, right? Because like for me, it's very personal. Like I've, I've, my father was reported, right? Like I saw him behind bars, and you know, he was trapped. Uh, you know, have cousins, friends, family who cross the border, you know, here. But the, the issues, and like, I, I truly believe that most people don't want to go on these long treks. They don't even want to leave their fucking communities if they've had, you know, quality of life. You know, especially people from Latin America, I would say, and I'm taking liberties here, generalizing that, but we value family, community. We value dance and culture and joy of living. You know, we don't, most people don't, don't they're not aspiring for all the bullshit the career the moving away from home having my massive house you know like in they just want safety right we all want just safety and fucking comfort you know and that's what i told you earlier i want them to leave this fucking city san francisco you know run away because there there's no point you know we're, i'm grinding i'm gonna migrate away from this place to find safety you know in you know, and like, and these people are right, coming here and they, they're going to have another set of challenges, you know, once they, uh, because I was documented when I came to this country and it took us 15 years, you know, having documents to go back to our country because we could not afford it financially. 22 years later, we can still can't afford a house in this fucking city that, that is called sanctuary for what? You know, sanctuary city for what? to come and be exploited and to get by daily, to sacrifice everything, you know, and, and you know, the, uh, we're all in the same bullshit in some way, you know, different degrees, right? This, this, the metaphor is the shithole. We're in a shithole, different piles of shit, you know, and, and some people have more precarious situations than others, but I suspect that increasingly we will find ourselves in more similar situations to that you know, to the people that have to do these incredible, you know, sacrifices to, for the prospects of a better life. You know, we will increasingly be put under competition. And like you said, Lipson, these people that run the world know history. The people that run the world know the system. You know, at least they think they know and they want to try to control it. And they will bring all this shit, you know, these technologies to regulate our movement. You know, and, 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 and not just across borders, you know, even that is going to become irrelevant, but not in the way we want it to become irrelevant. It's just because they will control our freedom of movement to a more minute detail, you know, and in, in, in the prospects of, you know, fighting back are just going to exponentially, you know, decrease, you know, because all these systems, but I still have hope. I, I want to, I guess, hold on to that because 
through the shit, you know, through the the suffering, through the the, the histories of you know not knowing our grandpas because they were killed in a war, you know, or because we have some family member that was disappeared, you know, or you know, or we have an uncle that was traumatized because he fought in the war, you know, for the fascist side, but still he fucking suffers from it, you know. Like through all that, I, I still, there is fucking resilience. There is resilience in humanity. And I want to believe in that, you know, in, in the joy, you know, of, of, you know, making something, you know, even when the fucking odds are, are so high, you know, and, and I want to believe in that at least, you know, because, you know, it's fucked up, you know, in, in, you know, that's why I can, you know, I do what I do, I guess. Cause it's not just about me. It is about me ultimately because they're coming after me right now. Like they've been coming for me hard for the last two years, you know, and I've paid a price with my own family, right? Like people that I love, but we have to keep fucking pushing, you know, and yeah, that's it. I, um, so I'll, I'll wrap up now. I'll find a way for us to wrap up. I, but I, I could wrap up with, Jessica's question about sex industry. You had a question I didn't get to. I remember that you wanted to ask me something. Well, I wonder if we should just do an episode whenever you're, yeah. especially if you have somebody who might like to come on, but even regardless, like, cause I feel like there's so much to unpack there yeah. that, uh, yeah. I, and I, I mean, I'll just say I was, I was thinking about, in relation to our, you know, we've been having these conversations about like fourth industrial revolution stuff in the past couple of weeks and episodes. And uh, yeah, I, I think we're like close to the same age, Eduardo. I forget how old you are, but I'm just thinking like even versus 10 years ago, um, like what sex work looks like. Um, and again, like that idea of safety and like webcamming, right? Um, and how you said, you know, you talked about like, really young like young people sometimes you know like you said less than 18 um um not really fully understanding the consequences um and i think like versus 10 years ago like that's like times a billion right i mean with the sort of digital surveillance and footprint and all of this stuff and i don't think it's unrelated i don't think it's a coincidence that you know, I, like the people in this country who are whatever, making signs, sex work is work and, and all of this like diversity, equity and inclusion stuff, um, which includes that. Um, I don't I don't think they understand like what it what it looks like. Um, and there's obviously a lot. You know, there's a lot of nuance and, and sex work doesn't really. I don't know. I feel like in some ways it's not a very accurate term because it's just such a wide spectrum of like what that can cover. Um, I mean, yeah. So maybe it's just for, for another episode, but I was just thinking about, yeah, like the false protection of the screen and how like it's, it's another way that it's like easier to stay at home, just like it's, easier for some of my fellow teachers to stay at home but really when you look at you know some of these other um ramifications in teachers case it's like well you're you're painting the road by which you're gonna completely lose your profession um and in sex work like 
yes, there is obviously a layer of physical safety that is good, right? That, you know, somebody can't violate you if you can just close your laptop, but there are a lot of different ways that you can be violated and exploited. And anyway, yeah, to, think, to be continued maybe. Yeah. So I just will say for folks that think it's as easy as just closing down the laptop, it's not. <laughs> There's a whole system that I've uncovered that we can talk about in another episode. I mean, there are monitors, there are the people who are in charge of these studios, and then there are the users who are as they're mad. I mean, some of these users, I know one worker who has had fear for her life because this person who is a user who is online lives in Sonoma, California, and is tracking the sex worker here down through social media, through, through facial recognition pictures, and like obsessively, this person has mental health issues. And the person working here in Colombia is like, oh my God, this person come down to Colombia and find me and do something to me. There's a lot of safety, right? And not just that for monitors, from people who are like considered virtual pimps, whatever. And it, it is like sad, these impressionable minds, right? That the, the, these young people, I don't know what they're realizing. What they're, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm glad I did what I did at a time when it wasn't like, there was no Snapchat, there was no Instagram. And I wasn't online as these people. I don't know if they're going to regret having their faces and their work being published and kept online on whatever cloud there is for the rest of their lives. And that's a whole different dimension. So I never experienced that, thank God. And I just, even talking about their experiences gives me a chance to sort of help them out through some of their experiences because some of them do virtual work and some of them do like physical in-person work. But it's a sad thing. And we talked about immigration. We talked about the sex industry here. We talked about the elections. And here's where I find a way to wrap up with this. And um, I think when I, talk to, when I talk to you all, I'm conscious that there are other people listening in. There are other people who are viewing. And I just want people to know that people can express their solidarity. People can be in solidarity with people in Colombia, with people in Palestine, and with the people that are in your local region in San Francisco, or you're in another states, in the USA, wherever you're at, by really being conscious of these, these gaslit ways of boogie people who are, that the government is trying to constantly gaslight us with, whether it be through say, in, in injecting fear into us with terrorism, immigration, or COVID, whatever it is, it is a way to, just a screen to try to get us to do, to mobilize massively. It's a way of control. And whoever's on the fence about COVID, whoever's listening to this, really understand that like, there is, there is this, 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 this narrative in order to control us, use on us massively. And that's what I've really, come to see here, right? Like there, it, it's experience, as Kenny has said, everywhere, wherever you're at, it's something that's being done everywhere, whether the government here is trying to do it or in the USA or whether you're in France or whether you're in Africa, wherever it is. So I, I hope that the solidarity anyone wants to show and the stories, well, bit of, that I've shared, uh, just moves people to really fight in their local communities and to see like, this is what I can do against this because I don't want to be controlled by the state. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of the system. And this liberal stuff has really led people to do this. More immigration, 
and more people taking extreme measures to find work. It's all, I'm sorry, liberal work. It's the liberals who have pushed for this. You've been, if you were, if you weren't, if you were, you're, you were either complacent or complicit. That's all you were in this. You were either those two things. And I'm sorry, but that is what you were. And I said that for schools as well, for kids. And I'm saying that for people, what I'm, I'm now experiencing here, it's either you were complacent, you were, did not say anything, or you were complicit. You participated and you were a part of that military force, like the teachers' unions, who I still think that they were part of that. So I, you either do I, something about it or you don't. I could not agree more. And Eduardo, I know it's odd because you are uh, OG what's left. You know, you and I started this together. But I, I actually want to do something we do with Allison or Jake. I want to thank you for coming on to the episode today. Um, I think what you had to share has really solidified for me how these things are interconnected in, in ways that I did not expect this to come up. Um, so I think this is a perfect time for you to share what some of your experiences and then to go into this area of sex work. And again, we've talked about the effect on children in education, but you just, you just open up a, com a completely new window into the effects of this stuff. And, and so I'm really grateful for you to making sure we did this episode, taking the time. Um, I'm not thanking you like you're going to be a guest from now on. We are going to come back and, you know, but I am, I'm grateful for you doing this. And thank you to your roommates for giving you like two and a half hours of space. <laughs> I didn't realize it was two and a half hours, but okay, we should go. So I'll be so I'll be here in Colombia for until the end of July. I can still do what's left. I'm have free time now. I'm I've taken some time off from volunteering, from traveling, from I'm now situated. So I can be on what's left. So I'll be here in Colombia <laughs> till the end of till the end of July and then I'm going to Mexico in August. And I'll be there with my family. I I need a I need like break. I need a break. Like, <laughs> All right. Uh, well, so that's where I'll be. We'll figure it out, and um, uh, we'll we'll either get you on every once in a while, maybe weekly. I don't know if we can pull that off, but wherever you are, whenever, obviously, whenever you want to come back, you've got a place here. So, thank you, thank you. I'll be I'll be here. I'll be, well. I'll keep in contact. We'll do right. topics together. Um, so maybe I'll do the, the wrap up. Yeah. All right, this is, Eduardo, this is the other reason I want you back on, so I, I can't spend doing this. Right. <laughs> Every time he reads it, like, it's the first time he's ever read it. <laughs> Let's, I, I'll do the, I'll do it. I can do it, but I, I need your help. Why don't we do it together? I'll do it first, and if I miss some part of it, you just jump in, Andy. All right, here we go. Then, do, you want, do, we, do you need to share? My, can I share my screen? Yeah, if you can share, I'd like to do it. Then you'll do it. Here we go. See? What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at what-s what-s-left.webnote.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything that you've heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, or Telegram. And you Rumble. can find... And Rumble. Thank you, Andy. And you can find any of that on our blog uh, to those links, wherever you found, or wherever you found this episode. Um, 
that concludes this episode. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with Kenny Cepeda and Jessica and Andy Lipson. Thank you all very much. And we'll see you all next time. Ciao. <laughs> Thank you, Eduardo.